You're listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's so good to see you this morning. If you haven't a chance to meet before, my name's Sam. I serve as one of the leaders here at the church. And uh, an extra special welcome to all of you who are joining us online. We miss you this morning, and uh, glad you could tune in and join in on that way. So um, this morning, we're continuing our series that we've been in across all our campuses in the book of Acts. And so if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 24? All our campuses are running through the, the, the book of Acts at a slightly different pace. So it's possible that you've hit this over the last few weeks, but hopefully we can bring a slightly different angle to it. And as we continue to learn and study these words from Luke. While you're turning there to Acts chapter 24, let me just give you a little bit of context as to what's happening in around this kind of section of scripture that we're going to be reading together today. There's this guy named Paul. He's often referred to as as Paul the Apostle. And he's been on this series of missionary journeys throughout the ancient world. He's bringing the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people in the ancient world. That's a huge part of what's been going on over the last just about 10 chapters of Acts. He's traveling kind of city to city, and he's telling anyone who will listen about this Jesus, that God has come in the person of Jesus, and that he's restoring, and he's redeeming all things. And so many people have been responding to Jesus, have been filled with the Spirit and getting baptized. And after several years of ministry and, and different missionary trips, Paul feels compelled to return to Jerusalem, this place where it all began. And so he does. He journeys back to Jerusalem. And when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, the religious teachers and and the Jewish elites, um, they're not very excited to see him. (laughs) They actually want to kill him. They want to take him out because in their minds, he's been out preaching heresy. He's been out saying that Jesus of Nazareth, this guy who was just crucified a few years before, he's saying that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And on top of that, he's welcoming in the, the, the Gentiles, those who are not Jews, are not circumcised, don't follow the law of Moses. He's welcoming them into the family of God and saying that they're accepted by God because of their faith in Jesus. And so for all of those reasons and more, the Pharisees and the Jewish elites in Jerusalem, they want to kill Paul. They want to get rid of him once and for all, putting an end to this kind of growing sect of Judaism that's been spreading all throughout the ancient world. And so one specific day, Paul the Apostle is is, is headed on route to the temple in Jerusalem. And on his way, he gets stopped by this angry mob. And they bring him out in front of the temple courts. And they start to riot and beat him. And this gets the attention of the authorities. And and so they end up arresting him. And and it all ends up in this Roman courtroom where Paul will, will, will stand in front of a governor named Felix. The religious leaders will give their plea as to why Paul is deserving of punishment, even death. And Paul will have a chance to defend himself. This is what precedes kind of Acts 24 will be today. So I want you to imagine that courtroom with me. If you've never been in a courtroom, maybe think of a courtroom that you've seen on TV, like Judge Judy, or, or maybe more recently, the, the, the trial of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. I, uh, okay, no, don't think about those. Think about like, a, think like an ancient courtroom. Think about like the rock, the beautiful rock that it's all been carved out of. And the Jewish accusers, like I said, the the religious teachers, they're on one side. They're riled up and angry and aggressive. And they're being represented by this lawyer named Tertullus. These guys, they want to do whatever it takes to take Paul out. They want to see him put to death. I want you to feel the tension in the room, the angst. And side note, these, these, uh, these Jewish accusers, they would have been connected to Paul in his former life as a Pharisee. 
These aren't strangers to him. Many of these likely would have been his friends years before as he served as a, as a Pharisee, as a religious teacher. And, and when Paul kind of gave his allegiance to Jesus, when he, became, when he went out as a missionary and, and sharing the gospel, they turned on him. So imagine the courtroom. Paul on one side, his accusers on the other. Look at verse 1, Acts 24. Normally we stand for the reading of scripture. This is a super long text. <laughs> so we're actually going to break it up section by section as we work through the text today. So you can stay seated. Uh, 24 verse 1. Here's what it says. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We've enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your providence has brought about reform in the nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. Okay, let's pause there for a moment. What's going on in these, in these opening verses? Tertullus, the lawyer, he's out making his opening statement in the courtroom, and he's getting ready to drop his accusations about Paul. But as he opens his speech, he engages in this intense flattery. He's flirting with Felix, kind of buttering him up, saying these things to get on the right side of Felix, saying he's brought peace and providence to all the people, that he's made great reforms in Israel, that they're filled with this amazing gratitude for Felix. The problem with those flattering words is that there's not an ounce of truth in them. <laughs> because who is this Felix? Well, well Felix is, is a governor of what's now called Palestine. He ruled from 52 to 60 AD. And everything we know in history about, if you study the ancient world, is that Felix was seriously messed up. He was cruel. He, he, he authorized the execution of thousands of people. He was corrupt, lying, bribery, scandals. He was a womanizer. He had tons of different wives. Many of them were even underage. Tons of affairs. He went down in history as one of the worst and most brutal leaders in the ancient world. One historian said that everywhere Felix and his cohort went, they, they, they brought desert and they called it peace. So with that in mind, those opening words from the lawyer is at best flattery, but really just this stack of lies. Felix has destroyed their land. He's been cruel to the people, but Tertullus is opening with these words to try to butter him up and get what he wants. I imagine Felix is standing there, just kind of shaking his head like, yeah, I am the man. These people love me. I think it's been said that flattery is like perfume. It smells nice, but don't drink it. Tertullus continues. Verse 5. We found this man Paul to be a plague, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to profane the temple. So we seized him. But examine him yourself and you'll be able to learn the truth about these charges that we're bringing against him. Let's stop there. What do they have against him? What are the charges that have been brought forward in this courtroom? Well, there's three. First, they say he's a plague. He's stirring up riots. He's disturbing peace. He's bringing chaos. In other words, he's politically dangerous, Felix. They're appealing to the, to the political concerns that Felix has. Because one of his main responsibilities as the governor of that area was to bring peace between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Tertullus, the lawyer, is saying, Felix, Mr. Fe Mr. Governor, Paul is going to make you look bad in front of your superiors. He's a plague. He's stirring up trouble for you. If you don't get rid of him, he's going to destroy this peace that you've been cultivating. He's a threat to your reputation. Second, they say he's a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. Okay, their choice of language here is just one slap in the face after another slap in the face. He's not a leader of the church. 
He's a ringleader. He's someone who's instigating illegal activity. He's, he's this ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. See, he's tying Christianity to Nazareth, where Jesus was from, because Nazareth was scoffed at and despised by the rest of the ancient world. Remember John chapter 1, when Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth had this, 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 repu- this really bad reputation. In local terms, maybe it would be like, and I hesitate to say this because it's a wonderful place to live and I lived there for quite some time, but it might be in local terms like saying, he's a gang leader from Surrey. <laughs> the lawyer is using Nazareth as this way of discrediting the movement. Oh, he's one of that. He's from that side of the bridge. They're trying to taint Felix's view of Paul right out of the gate. He's not a prominent religious leader of this respected movement. He's a ringleader of this gang from Surrey. So first point against him is he's a plague. He's stirring up riots. The second is he's this ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And then third, and this is the only claim that I think brings any real charge against him. They say he tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Don't worry. Here's the thing. They brought no evidence for any of this. I mean, there's no real crime in the first two offenses. It's essentially just name-calling. But then they make this claim that he's trying to profane the temple, and their proof is ask him. He'll tell you. They say, by examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything which we accused him. Essentially, they're hoping that Paul will go in the stands and will say something that Felix finds incriminating. So those are the charges. Verse 11 And when the governor had nodded him to speak, Paul replied. Okay, this is Paul's turn to to kind of bring his defense. Here's what he says. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers didn't find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they can't prove to you these charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. In other words, he's saying... You know, all this stuff they're saying about me, defiling the temple. I I didn't even have time to do any of this stuff. I've been here for 12 days, and five of those days I've been with these guys for a crime that they say I've committed. He says, you can verify it. Go to Jerusalem. Ask anyone who was there. I didn't have have a dispute with anyone or stir up any crowds in the temple or the synagogues or the city at all. I didn't even preach in the streets. I came here to worship Yahweh in the temple. And then I got beat up and taken into custody. Verify it for yourself if you want, Felix, but they can't prove any of this stuff because it didn't happen. Notice, Paul has nothing to hide. In regards to profaning the temple and stirring up riots, causing chaos in the streets, he says, do whatever digging you need to do. Investigate the claims. Go, Go ask the people in the streets. I know if you look into it, you'll find these to be empty claims. He has nothing to hide because truth is on his side. And can I just say, that is such an amazing place to be, to know that truth is on your side. To not have to lie or cover up or spin a story to try to protect yourself. To just live openly and transparently, having nothing to hide. Not feeling that you need to pretend to be something that you're not. Living a life of honesty where your public life and your private life are so in sync. Not having to worry about, if someone found out you know, I've walked with several friends who, who've been, who had carried something around with them, some, some secret sin or, or thing going on in their life for a period of time. And when they finally brought it out into the light and exposed it, I think every one of them would tell you that their life became so much lighter. 
there's all this anticipation about sharing what was true. And then when it's in the light, when you're transparent and open and honest, having nothing to hide, it just makes you so much lighter. There's something so freeing about having nothing to hide. About living this life of truth and transparency, exposing who you really are, the good and the bad and the ugly. And so, so because Paul has nothing incriminating, he has nothing to hide, no hidden skeletons in his closet, his accusers have to make up a bunch of stuff in order to, accuse, in order to take him out. They lie in order to take him down. He's starting up riots. He's, he's defiling the temple. But if you look beneath the layers, I don't think it was really about any of that stuff, about the riots or the disturbance of peace. It all boils down to Paul's proximity to Jesus. That Paul followed Jesus, and the religious leaders hated him because of it. They followed Jesus. I don't think we should be surprised that the world hates us or cuts us out because of our faith in Jesus. According to John 15, it's actually something we can expect. Jesus said, when the world hates you, remember they hated me first. And especially as we live in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in, one that's becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian faith, we should expect that the gospel is going to offend some people. Jesus' call to confess sin and to turn to God, his claim to be the exclusive way to the Father, it doesn't go over super well in a pluralistic 21st century Western context. And as time goes on, I think it's possible that our allegiance to Jesus would cost us relationships or jobs or promotions if we're unwilling to compromise our values, unwilling to turn from our convictions and our faith. But can I just say this? If people are gonna hate us, if they're going to hate you and me, if they, if they are going to have something against us, let's make sure it's actually Jesus. <laughs> let's make sure it's actually Jesus and his way that's causing the conflict, that if the world is hostile towards us, that it's because of our proximity to Jesus and not because we just tend to be jerks. Here's what I mean. I think it's far too easy. You know, I've heard Christians hold up Jesus' word from John 15 where he says, you know, if, if the world hates you, remember they hated me also. And, and they can hold up those words and, and say, well, Jesus said this would happen. Jesus said the world would hate us. But sometimes I want to say, I don't think it's Jesus in you that they're hating right now. It might be the absence of Jesus in you. Maybe you're sharing truth, maybe. But you can do it in a way that's harsh and condescending. It can make people actually close their ears. See, the call of the Christian is to live in such a way that people see Jesus in us. To share the truth, absolutely, but to do it in love. Paul says it's the kindness of God that draws people to repentance. As a people of God, we should be the most loving and caring and compassionate and hospitable people on the planet. Just as we've experienced the extravagant generosity of God, the hope and the joy and the forgiveness that he has on offer, so we should extend that same thing to the people around us welcoming in the stranger and the outcast, the rich and the poor, pulling up a chair at the table. We should live in such a way that our proximity to Jesus is the only thing that someone could have against us. The only valid claim that they could make against us is that we're followers of Jesus, that we live our life in alignment with him. Like they said about Paul, that we're part of that sect of the Nazarenes. Paul goes on. None of that's true. However, I will admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that's in accordance with the law that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as the men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Here's what he's saying. 
we have way more in common than you guys are saying. I'm a worshiper of Yahweh. I abide by everything that was written in the law and the prophets. We worship the same God. The only difference between you, Jewish leaders, and, and me is that I believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole story. And I'm unwilling to compromise on that. I'm a Jew through and through, he would say. I just believe that the whole story of God climaxes in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul finishes his rebuttal. And, and I imagine that the room in that moment maybe went silent as they waited for a response from Felix. Maybe a hush fell over the place. And how does Felix respond to the claims of the religious leaders, to, to the response from Paul? I want to spend time today, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at Felix's response because I think it's significant. There's a lot we can learn from it. He responds in three ways. He responds with curiosity, with anxiety, and with complacency. I tried to find three C words, but I couldn't. And so I settled for words that end with an E sound. Okay? <laughs> curiosity, anxiety, and complacency. Uh, let's, let's read the last six verses of the chapter together, and then we'll unpack them one by one. Then Felix, who is well acquainted with the way, he adjourned the proceedings. In other words, he called it to a close. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I'll decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him and spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You can leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Let's look at those three E words. First, curiosity. I find it interesting that after that day in court, Felix sends for Paul repeatedly, it looks like. He wants to hear more about this Jesus. For two years, it goes on. He keeps calling for Paul and listening to him talk about Jesus. He even brought his wife to hear. He was curious. And here's what I think he was wondering. Why would Paul... Why would he sacrifice his whole life, even risk death out of allegiance to this Jesus? Like, like Paul was a prominent rabbi in, the, in, the, in the, the for, his former life. He was well-respected by the Jewish community. He kind of had it made. He was well-respected. Why would he change his tune and begin preaching the very message he was previously trying to stomp out? I think Felix was filled with curiosity. Like, whether or not this Jesus was, was, was the real deal, Paul certainly believed he was. And there was this growing population of people who had bought into this narrative. But why? Felix was curious. And as I was studying this passage over the last week, I couldn't help but ask myself, does my life, does the way that I live make people around me curious about this Jesus that I follow? Does the way I love and the way I serve and give and care for those around me do the things that I say, the way that I conduct myself, does it make the people around me curious about why I'm the way I am? Does it make them curious about Jesus? I hope so. I want that to be true of me. I have a, I have a friend named Clint. And 10 years ago, Clint's wife passed away from cancer, a super young age. She was barely 30 years old, two young kids at home. Absolute tragedy. And I remember watching Clint navigate through that situation. He grieved. He was, he was broken, as you'd expect. But he also had this insane hope. He clung to Jesus so much so that it made me stand in awe and kind of stand in wonder. It made, made the world around him stand in awe. Like, 
he really believes this stuff. He really believes that, that, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, that his wife is in the presence of Jesus, that God's gonna take care of him and his kids, even in the absence of their mom. And as he navigated that season, you know, one of the darkest days of his life, he, he didn't turn on God, but he actually clung to him. And as a result, he made the people around him curious. Like, Clint, why are you so filled with hope? Why are you so steady when the world around you is crashing in? Clint made people contemplate and ask questions about this Jesus that he followed. Maybe you're here today and you're curious. Not really sure what you think about this, this Jesus. You wouldn't consider yourself religious. Maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but you're interested. Felix kept coming back and listening and pondering and wondering. He was curious. And this is why I love Alpha so much. This is why we as a church are so committed to putting on the Alpha course all throughout the year because it provides a place for curious people to come in and to explore the Christian faith and to ask questions and to ponder and to disagree and to discuss. You know, I'm so encouraged. We've talked about this several times, but there's nearly 100 people, 100 curious people right now every Wednesday night coming and gathering and learning about the Christian faith together. God is drawing people towards himself. And I really believe that those who seek truth, that really seek truth, that they will find it, that they'll find him. So we see the curiosity of Felix, but then we also see the anxiety of Felix, the fear of Felix. Verse 25 says, Felix was afraid. As Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. I think this is an interesting one. It kind of feels like role reversal because who's the one in charge here? Felix, who's the prisoner? Paul. And and I mean, it would feel logical that the prisoner should be the one who's trembling. The governor, he should be laughing. He should be kind of, he's the one in control. He's the one in the place of power. He should be totally comfortable. Why would he be fearful? But no, the guy in charge is shaking and trembling because Paul has reasoned with him about faith in Jesus, what it means to be made right with God, about heaven and hell. That word reasoned, there. Paul reasoned with him. I think that's an important word to note. Because I think a lot of people, they they assume that the Christian faith is one that requires that you just blindly follow. A lot of people assume that the biblical story of Jesus, of the resurrection, is just some easily dismissed fairy tale. Like a conspiracy theory that we can be easily debunked if you just look a little closer at the facts. But that's not actually true. The closer you look into the facts, the more you realize that the Christian faith is actually a very reasonable thing to believe. There's this brilliant intellectual, his name was Albert Henry Ross. He wrote this book in the 1930s called Who Moved the Stone, where, where he, who was this outspoken atheist at the time, he set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ once and for all. Like, someone's got to put this hoax to bed. But as he studied, he found that the evidence of the resurrection was so compelling that he, he wrote a very different book in the end than he set out to write. Because through the process of writing this book and looking into the claims of Jesus and the resurrection, he ended up finding it so compelling that he gave his life to Jesus. Paul reasoned with Felix. And it made him anxious. It made him scared because the gospel butted up against him. It confronted his way of life. Paul told him about Jesus and how to be made right with God. He talked about self-control, which was a very appropriate thing to talk about with a guy like Felix. He'd been abusing his power and, and taking whatever he wanted, praying on the weak. Paul was calling him out in his nonsense. The way you're leading is not okay. 
told them about judgment to come, about heaven and hell. And as Paul shared about Jesus and the gospel, what it looked like to follow Jesus, what it required of him, it made Felix anxious. It made him fearful and tremble because he knew it demanded a response. In a lot of ways, Felix's response through this story reminds me of, of the rich young ruler that approached Jesus. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you remember that? And Jesus replies, he says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, then come and follow me. And Mark 10, 22 says, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. The rich young ruler was sad because following Jesus was gonna cost him something. It was gonna cost him everything. It's the same for Felix. If he was gonna embrace this Jesus as Lord, it, it was gonna require that he give up his comfortable life. He'd have to surrender control. It would require actually a radical change in the way that he governed and led. And so we see this emotional response from Felix. We see him trembling. This deep conviction seems to be happening in his heart. Something's happening, but rather than acting on it, rather than doing the right thing, here's what Felix does. He delays. Look what Felix says in verse 25. He says, that's enough for now. You can leave. When I find a convenient time, I'll send for you. I think that is the saddest verse in our whole text. Maybe one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. Because here's the tragedy. If you study scripture, if you study history, that convenient time never came. Two years later, Felix was moved from his post by the Romans. He got fired from his job. They realized he was crazy. He was out to lunch and they kicked him out of office. And he left Caesarea where he was and shortly after he passed away. Felix was given opportunity after opportunity to do the right thing. For two years, he heard from Paul. For two years, he was, he was like personally mentored by Paul the Apostle. Can you imagine that, being mentored by Paul? Like you and Paul, the Bible, a latte at Cafe Espresso Bar. But Felix kept saying no. No. When it's convenient, I'll consider it. Tomorrow, I'll consider it. But he missed it because he procrastinated, because he was complacent. One theologian said that tomorrow is the most dangerous word in the Christian life. Tomorrow I'll confess my sin. Tomorrow I'll find accountability. Tomorrow I'll get right with God. Tomorrow I'll break that unhealthy dating relationship or that habit. Tomorrow I'll give my life to Jesus. Tomorrow I'll start living out the call of God on my life. Tomorrow I'll get baptized. But tomorrow may never come. The time is now. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul writes this, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Not later, not tomorrow, now. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. I wonder if there might be some Felixes here this morning. Maybe you've been complacent. Maybe you've been procrastinating. But it's time to go all in with Jesus and you know it. Maybe there's a sense of angst even in your heart right now, a trembling. Even now, maybe you're wondering if God is speaking to you. You know, maybe you've even been sitting on the fence. Maybe you've been 60% of the way in. Like you come to church, you do the stuff, you're curious, you've been listening, but God is inviting you to go all in, to go all in today, to turn to Jesus or to return to Jesus, to surrender your life to God.
God who loves you. I wonder today who Jesus might want to get a hold of, who he might be calling to himself. There is so much that God wants to do in and through your life to bring freedom. But it starts with a yes. Yes to Jesus. Yes, I'll surrender my life to him. Now, scripture tells us that turning to Jesus is as easy as, as confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you're saved. You know, so if that's you today, if, if you're done with complacency, and you say, I actually do, I, I wanna follow this Jesus. I wanna give my life to him. I would love to pray for you to pray for those who want to come to Jesus, to give their allegiance to him. But I'd also love to pray for those who, who, who maybe are already Christians, are followers of Jesus, but there's something in your life that you've been needing to deal with, that you've been convicted about, that's been wreaking havoc in your world. Like, you know there's stuff in your life that needs to change, that's separating you from God, that's maybe messing with your relationships, but you've been procrastinating. You've been complacent, lukewarm, one theologian called procrastination, Felix syndrome. <laughs> Maybe you've had Felix syndrome and you've sensed God leading you, drawing you in, but you've been ignoring it. Can I just say to you that the time is now. Don't delay. The longer you wait, the harder it is. But we got this imagery in scripture of a father whose arms are stretched wide open. A father who loves you and is ready and waiting to welcome you in with a warm embrace. I don't know what's, what's going on in your world. I don't know what the spirit of God might even be laying on your heart in this moment. Maybe there's something you've done that you need to bring before him. Maybe there's something you haven't done, but he's stirring in you, calling you to step out in faith in an area of your life to go somewhere, to do something, to share your story, but you've been procrastinating. You've, you, you've had Felix syndrome. The time is now. Tomorrow may never come. Can I encourage you to take a step towards God and see if he doesn't move powerfully in your life? Why don't we pray together? Respond in song. Lord Jesus, I, I, I pray for my friends in the room. Pray first specifically for those who are here today and they say, I'm done with procrastination. I'm done with complacency. I want to go all in with Jesus. I want to surrender my life to him. I want to give him my allegiance to align my life with his way. I just pray right now that you would give them boldness to make that decision. If that's you today, let me, let me pray this prayer with you. And, if, and if, if you want to give your life to Jesus, you can simply just agree to this prayer along with me in your heart. Jesus, I, I give my life to you. I'm done wandering. I'm done straying. I want to come and, and, and be part of your family. I want to follow you all the days of my life. You save me from my sin. You save me from myself. I trust you, Jesus. I also want to pray for those who might be here this morning who, slightly different category, you've been, you've been wrestling like I was talking about, about something that maybe God has been inviting you into. Maybe there's something in your life that you need to surrender to him. 
Let's pray right now for you as well. That God would give you boldness and courage to take the steps towards him that you need to take. And as you do that, I pray that you would experience the love of the Father. The arms open wide posture of a God who loves you and says, come on, come home, come back to me. Lord, help us to follow you in everything we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.